On this episode of the Cinema Syndicate Podcast, we give our marquee picks for our favorite stand-up comedians that have transitioned to film and television. We also discuss the Netflix original film Dolomite Is My Name, and then we spin the wheel for a little bit of fun. So, let's go and listen. Woo! It's gonna come back. All right. No way. What's the score? 103.95. Damn. They're down to like 22. I know. This is nuts. You know, a lot of sports. Hitting, hitting that sweet spot with the wine, so we better get started. <coughs> Let's roll, baby. All right. That yeah, we, we really gotta roll. All right. We all ready? Yep. Nope. <sighs> God damn it. God damn it. I think I, I think we should start with like the music actually playing. That way I can get into the rhythm of it before we actually get going. But... The rhythm of the night. <laughs> All right. So how do you change it right now? It's got to like uh, stop where it says stop video, that arrow, and I think you can do it from there. Uh, you choose virtual background. Yeah. All right. All right. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Syndicate Podcast, the movie re- review show spreading its movie hot takes from East Coast to West Coast and sometimes in between. As usual, I'm Matthew Scott and I'm joined by Mr. Preston Pokey Barnes. Right on, fellas. How we doing? <laughs> joined by Mr. and Mr. Joseph Fine. Gentlemen, good evening. <laughs> and last but not least, I'm joined by Mr. Rod Budman. How you doing, Rod? I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> All right. As usual, before we get started, I want to say thank you to all our previous listeners, all the people that are loyally following us. We really, really appreciate it. To the new people that have been out there who have joined the show, if you could and you like the show, please go and review our show. Give us a nice rating on iTunes. It really helps us out, helps the show grow, and helps us get better and better. So before we get into the movie, which is Dolomite Is My Name, we like to do our little marquee picks. Uh, this week, we're doing stand-up comedians that have transitioned into movies and films. So people that started in stand-up comedy and then gradually got bigger and bigger and kind of maybe quit, but then went into uh, acting. So since this was Joe's uh, topic, whatever, we'll let Joe kick us off with his favorite stand-up comedians that uh, whatever got into movies. Well, this is a, a pretty expansive topic here, boys. So <laughs> you could have gone a lot of ways with this so you know I, I tried to pick some deep cuts here so with the third pick i went with dave Chappelle in half-baked i know this was a classic among our age group among our friends and growing up in high school and college he was an absolute classic of Chappelle in half-baked number two i'm going to go with robin williams and good morning vietnam one of my favorite movies um <clears throat> 
a lot of te- catchphrases in that one, um, especially his rants. Um, you know, when he's introducing the songs and all that, that's great. And my number one is Eddie Murphy in Life. It came out in 1999, so this is post Nutty Professor, which c- could arguably be his greatest comedic role um, with Dave Chappelle. Um, but yeah, oh, yeah, the movie is about uh, Martin Lawrence and uh, Eddie Murphy are two guys that are paid by a gangster to transport a bunch of liquor uh, from New York City down south, and they're caught by the cops and set up that they didn't commit and so that they are sentenced to life in prison in, at this you know prison camp in Mississippi and all the characters that are in the prison plus the prison guards and stuff like that it just leads to hilarity if you haven't seen it rent it buy it it's it is literally the funny one of the funniest movies you'll ever see Chris uh, Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy team up it's like Martin Lawrence and Will Will Smith in Bad Boys but this is a comedy <laughs> no, yeah, I've never even heard so of it. Good, like now man. that it's got such high praise, I'm definitely gonna look into it. But no, I, for, I mean, not that I like follow Eddie Murphy's career with a magnifying glass or anything, but I thought I'd at least heard of that. So, um, all right, so those are Joe's picks. He wrapped up with life with Eddie Murphy. Uh, let's go to Preston. Preston, what are your top three comedians that transition into movies? All right, uh, number three would be a famous writer comedian who. Uh, I guess you could say he's been acting <laughs> as himself, and that would be Larry David, Kirby Enthusiasm. Uh, one of my all-time favorite shows. Could watch that every day. <laughs> uh, next, and I, I kind of went back and forth between number two and number one, but I ended up going with Zach Galifianakis in uh, the Between Two Ferns talk show from Funnier to Die. <laughs> Amazing. Again, I could watch those uh, those um, interviews constantly I mean they just crack me up and the, like his character also the movie well Netflix was pretty funny too um, the first ones are great because you couldn't tell if he was being serious or not but once like sort of like the illusion dropped it kind of loses a little bit of its edge but the first ones are so, yeah. so like they just feel so real yeah like they the, do and it's 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 very much in line with uh, if you've ever seen Zach Galifianakis stand up, like it's kind of along along those lines, and it's just his stand up is so good. By the way, if any if y'all have never seen it, um, and then number one, uh, I'm also going with Dave Chappelle, but I'm not going with Half Baked as much as I love that film. I'm going with the Chappelle Show, <laughs> and honestly, I, I thought about doing like specific skits, uh, the one that. Uh, really came to mind there are a few but was the clayton bigsby one and then uh um any of the like the prince rick james i mean gosh little john and then some of the smaller ones too are are hilarious well yeah dolomite is his name was in remembrance of charlie murphy because charlie murphy died and he's eddie murphy's brother whatever and so yeah that kind of wraps into that so dave Chappelle, those those famous skits about prince and rick james whatever yeah Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood, true Hollywood story. story yeah. yeah. So they basically were like Charlie Murphy stories that they should yeah. like put to film and sort of act it out. Yeah. Um, no, I was just going to add that the black white supremacist, which was actually the first ever skit, I believe in the first episode of uh, the Chappelle show is, I think it was, yeah. My favorite skit of all time. <laughs> and it, yeah, that's like the dead. Right. 
get in Monty Python level comedy. Yeah, I mean, you it's know, like he's taking social commentary to a whole nother level and doing it in a way that only Dave Chappelle can do. And it's you just, know what, it's so fucking brilliant and hilarious and worth a watch for sure you, if you haven't. You know what's kind of funny is because I was watching this documentary a couple of days ago. It's on Hulu. It's about the Dana Carvey show and it's called Too Funny to Fail because they had all these super talented people on like Dana Carvey, Steve Carell, uh, uh, what do you want to say, uh, Stephen Colbert and uh, Robert Smigel and Louis C.K. Like all these people were on this show writing and helping and acting and stuff like this. And they almost blame the failure of the show was because they went too edgy with the first sketch was, and they did some president Clinton thing where like he was literally like had like his eight teats and he was like feeding like little babies and like cats and stuff like that. And apparently like they were thought it was just going to be like sort of a Dana Carvey sort of wholesome church lady kind of thing. But he tried to be like really, really edgy from the gate and it just like tanked. Apparently like they, yeah. they started after home improvement, which was the biggest show of the day or whatever. They were on that Thursday night slot after home improvement. And they said that when they got the ratings back that Friday morning, it was like super high. And then after two minutes, it just fell to zero because yeah. everyone changed the channel. But what I was getting at is because, like you said, Joe, it was the first ever sketch. In some ways, it sort of set the tone for what Chappelle's show was going to be. And, and also, when in terms of TV and retaining viewers or whatever, when you set like a strength of really strong first impression, it keeps people wanting to come back. And obviously, yeah. that show was super, super successful. Uh, so yeah, that was a long-winded way of sort of wrapping it up. But uh, <laughs> all right, Rod, we're going to move on to your top three comedians. I've transitioned into movies. Go for it. Okay, well, so I just thought it was top actors, not necessarily in a role, but I did just read the text where, but I can, <laughs> I can uh, do this. So um, my number three is going to be Adam Sandler and uh, Waterboy. My number two is going to be Steve Martin and um, edit that out. What? Dude, Frank. The fucking wedding. What is the name? From Father of the Bride. Father, Father of the Bride. Yeah. yeah. Okay. With uh, uh, Frank Martin Short. <laughs> Martin Short, God. With Jeez. Martin Short and the Shoe Factory. I just love that movie. Touches, such a great movie. Such a great uh, movie. Robert, just go ahead and say like a number two and then sort of say Steve Martin or whatever. That way I have something. I don't have to piece it together. Okay. I'll just take it from the top. Super fast. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my, my favorite three stand-ups who, uh, transitioned into movies is going to be Adam Sandler and, um, I'm going to go with Billy Madison. And then my number two pick is going to be Steve Martin and Martin Short in Father of the Bride. And my number one pick is going to be Robin Williams and Miss Doubtfire. Rod, bringing back Mrs. Doubtfire because that was one of his picks previously. Uh, but no, obviously Robin Williams. There's, I mean, not to get into so many like stories and documentaries, remember uh, or whatever. But I remember Dave Letterman the night that, or the night or night after, whatever Robin Williams died. He had this like really fun, not fun, but sort of yeah. a tribute to Robin Williams, where he'd start talking about how every single person they they were like trying to make it as stand up com comedians or whatever in L.A. And they also were doing the exact same thing, like, so, but they were still competitive, but sort of like they, they weren't doing anything special or new. And then one day, like out of nowhere, Robin Williams showed up. They'd never seen him before, never anything. And he just gets up on the stage and he just does like his full, like Robin Williams shot out of a cannon high on coke type, just speedballing joke after joke after joke, energy, energy, energy. And Dave was like, 
I had to follow him and like, what the fuck do you do after that? You go up there and say like, oh, like he's like, he'd been so accustomed to thinking comedy was just sort of like, and one and two with the punchline or whatever. He didn't even like, at that time, they didn't even conceive of stand-up comedy as a way that Robin Williams went up there and did it. So it was just so, they said it was so intimidating. They were like scared to talk to him, but he was just like such a crazy special talent. Like he just had that energy and fearlessness that a lot of people just can't really get. Uh, yeah, yes. and, I, and I would say he brought that in many ways to a lot of the movies he was in, not just the comedies, but all like also the dramas and like even he had, had a couple of like kind of scary roles where he played a villain and he was just always so good. I mean, just I, I, I feel like he was always able to elicit emotions out of you as a viewer by whether he's being funny or whether he's being kind of sad. I mean, I, I always thought he was an, an incredible dramatic actor. That movie and you're talking about, the, a, a lot more movies. It's like one hour photo, I think it's called, and it's creepy yeah. as hell. It's so yeah, it's really creepy, and he's really good. Yeah, and like, he's just you know, I mean, he's just one of those uh, once a generation type acts as a comedian, actor, and you know, even seemingly as just like a individual. Just uh, yeah, that's a good pick. That's all. What you got, Joe? I was going to ask, would you think that Jim Carrey is a poor man's Robin Williams? I, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't say poor man's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jim Carrey's the, incredible. They both but, have that same type of energy, but, but I don't know if like Jim Carrey has that same type of wit where he can sort of turn something on a phrase that Robin Williams seemed to be able to do, but they both have that sort of that, like crazy energy that yeah. sort of just keeps you watching. Right. Yeah, go ahead. I just meant that. Um, well, I was going to observe that I don't think that Jim Carrey quite has the dramatic acting chops that Robin Williams does, and <sighs> quite the range. And I was wondering if, yeah. you know, Jim Carrey really doesn't have the, you know, Dead Poet Society or the One Hour Photo. He, he has Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I guess Truman, Truman, Truman Show. Truman Finding Show Forrester. is pretty dramatic. What Brian Forrester? I just in that. So critically acclaimed as those other movies, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I might disagree just a little bit. I'm not, I, I'm not saying that he's like. I think they both have uh, do drama like roles. I think they're just kind of. I mean, they're just kind of different. I mean, I thought Man on the Moon was incredible. I also thought. Uh, yeah, Andy Kaufman. Yeah, I mean, they're just. I, I think it's just comedians like Jim Carrey was. I think he got really big at the beginning, even before like in Living Color, because he had, he did such like physical acting, like he was super limber and did like some crazy shit. He was and like he was a just, snake. He's like a snake the way he can like move his jaw. I feel like he uh, can like dislocate it and like move it all sorts of different places. I mean, and he could. I mean, if you look at some of his old old comedian like stand up stuff, I mean, it's like his arms, his legs, yeah, his like neck, and and it's just they're just different, but they brought like a similar energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it kind of depends on just like your taste as far as like the, the some of the drama stuff. But I mean, I think they're both really good actors. I would say as comedians, those are two of the best actors. Yeah, no, I th- I think Robin Williams is probably better. Definitely edges him out. I don't know if I'm calling poor man's, but I get what Joe's saying. Whatever. Yeah. Um, for sure, for sure. All right, so I'm gonna uh, end this with my picks right now. So we're gonna go with number three. This is really just because of one scene that I found incredibly funny, but I've got Aziz Ansari as Saddam and Observing Report. <laughs> Number two, I've got Nick Swartzen as Terry Jaspermans in Reno 911. Oh, and, <laughs> and number one, I've got David Cross as Tobias Funke in Arrested Development. I think we've all heard my rants, or not rants, but my love and adulation for 
all things rest of development but yeah yeah i, I mean that character's just so crazy and so out there and like it's it's almost i, I feel like it's almost poorly it's not poorly acted but it, it the way he does it makes you feel like it's poorly acted but that's sort of like the point because this yeah. guy is almost like living a sham a lie that he's sort of acting his way through life in some sense it's so so bizarre like it's almost incredible so awkward and so weird but no i mean that's just the role itself is so so funny and the way they sort of constantly were able to come up with so much wordplay that just is so repetitive and so I don't know. It just blows my mind how smart and intelligent that show is sometimes. I was a little surprised that Ricky Gervais didn't in <laughs> for you, Matthew. Uh, well, you know, I thought about just the, oh, yeah. just in terms of being like literally sticking to comedians that turned into acting, he was really more of an actor that went in, like he was, he was an actor that transitioned into stand-up comedy. I don't know if you've ever seen that HBO thing called Top Talking Funny that he hosts with like Chris Rock and Louis C.K. and Jerry Seinfeld, I think. But he does discuss that he like he talks about how Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld and those guys all like, you know, got big by doing a club scene or whatever. And then they got a TV deal and got like movie movie parts or got pilot parts and then got their own show. But he said it was different for him because he worked at like the BBC and he sort of was just some dude that kind of was on the radio and got to write a pilot. And then once he got big and popular, he started doing stand up comedy. So he said he really? did it kind of in reverse. Yeah, I did not know that. I always have associate him with stand-up but now i think about it i guess i haven't seen any like old stuff i guess it's always been kind of relatively he, new he started with like i don't know if y'all seen this but he started as like a musician and he was in this band like two-man band called shona dancing and they kind of had like a little kind of big hit like a little bit of success and then he kind of turned into some guy like uh it didn't work out or whatever and they started working for like programming in the bbc and he sort of like wrote some sketches for some of their stuff or whatever, and it was on the radio. And then when Stephen Merchant came, that's when they sort of, he, Stephen Merchant started working for him at the BBC and they wrote the pilot and got on TV or whatever. But then he started doing stand-up wow. after that. I'm gonna have to look up this uh, sound of dancing. That's, that's wild, I did not know that. You won't believe like what he looks, he kind of looks like a fat David Bowie, like in his younger days, like he was kind of like skinny, but he still has like the big like cheeks. Holy like, shit, <laughs> this is him, I'm looking at a picture. Yeah, it's kind of the That is nuts. Yeah. Whoa. Butch David Bowie? Huh? I mean, like, honestly, he's very thin. Like, he, you're right. I mean, David Bowie was, when he was a thin white dude, was so thin. But it's, you're right. This looks like, kind of like David Bowie. This is but he's got, like, those big cheeks. Like, it's definitely not. David Bowie, obviously, was super skinny. But you can still yeah. see, like, Ricky Gervais is sort of, like, packing almonds in his mouth or something like that. That is wild. <laughs> Um, well, I just before we move on, I love that pick of uh, Nick Swartzen as Terry from Real <laughs> One. That's that's just a great character. So funny. Yeah, I mean, he's. I, I find myself watching like all of just the best of Terry on YouTube or whatever <laughs> all the time. Terry comes rolling around. I mean, it is. It's just like a gay dude on skates is always going to be funny. <laughs> He just, uh, I mean, I think his whole goal was to try to make everyone laugh. You can tell, like, when he literally is, like, hoping to, like, get them to laugh. Like, that seems to be, like, his whole priority is to make them bust while they're, like, watching or whatever, or acting, because it's all improv, so they don't know what he's going to say. Yeah, yeah, definitely improv. All right, so what we're going to do now, we just finished our sort of marquee picks. We're going to move on to our discussion of Dolomite is my name. Uh, so basically, just a little background on this movie is it's a story of Rudy Ray Moore, and it starts with him being sort of down and out, and he's sort of a middle-aged man. I think he's sort of in his, like, mid-40s, and he's working at a record store. 
I think his goal was he moved from uh, somewhere and he, he tried to move to LA or whatever to be big as an actor or a musician. And he's still sort of struggling as a musician at this point when the, when the story starts for us. And he comes up with this great idea to uh, pay vagabonds, homeless people or whatever for their stories because he's been like some of these uh, homeless people come into the store and they have like funny things to say or whatever. And he says, funny's funny. If I can just polish some of their jokes, I think I can make it big. And that's what he does. And that's sort of like when he jumps off into success. So my question here at the beginning, I don't want to get too much into the end, but this sort of is an all-encompassing question is, uh, but this movie is so is about like an underdog grinding his way to success against a system or industry that rejects him. And like I just said, I know that he pays the homeless guys for their jokes and for their time and he records them. But is there any type of irony that Rudy got his big break by sort of exploiting some people lesser than him? And would you have liked to see like that issue resurface in the film and like with maybe like Rudy getting confronted about it by maybe someone else that heard these jokes like, man, you stole those, you copped those from the guy. Because kind of what I'm getting at, he gets into like this whole point that it's like these homeless guys are sort of part of the neighborhood. And I know that Preston Rod and I maybe can remember this, that when we were in school at CFC is that there were like kind of homeless people that sort of had their own territory, right? You could like almost remember their names. They almost were all around. So if he was sort of in this like community comedy setting, I bet a bunch of people knew those jokes already. So do you think like it was justified? Do you think it was fair trade or whatever that he sort of caught these jokes from some people that were just like a little disappointed, oh, what do you want to call it, like un in an unfortunate situation? Or what, what do you guys think? Maybe I'm sort of reaching. But I just thought it was a little bit ironic that he's sort of like this underdog that nobody wants to help out, but he almost exploits people that are in even a lesser situation than him. Joe, what do you think since this was your movie? Well, I, th I think it's a good question, and I think that, you know, a little bit of inside baseball with com comedy and comedians is I think that they, they're influenced by everybody. I think that any comedian will tell you that they take bits from, you know, bits from people's acts that they grew up with listening to or, you know, that they enjoy now and they're influenced by that, you know, that they put their own little spin on and you know run with it that's i mean that's how comedy evolves and, and becomes great you know dave Chappelle would say that he listened to lenny bruce all the time and he probably used some of lenny bruce's material and just kind of like put his little spin on it and i i think that's how um i think that's how the great ones work and i think eddie murphy kind of saw a little bit of himself in uh rudy ray because you know as we all know with uh, Eddie Murphy's career, he wanted to be everything. He wanted to be on the stand-up stage. He wanted to be, you know, a TV star, movie star, everything. So, you know, I think he, he sang that song "Party" all the time with Rick James. He wanted to be a musician too. Yeah, I don't know if he remembers that that one single he put out. <laughs> oh yeah! Wow! Well, wow! Well, yeah. My girl wants to party. <laughs> I was just thinking about Dave. Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, 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 sorry for interrupting you, Joe. But I was just when you said he wanted to be everything, that's all I could think about. Well, it, you know, you kind of got the same vibe, but they they wanted to be on every screen and in on every speaker. So, you know, it, it was kind of a um, I, I I think that you know they they borrowed and it just evolved. The comedy evolves that way. So I, I don't think it was kind. Of, I, I I think that you know. To get down to the actual question, 
I think that he paid for the, you know, for the material, and they knew that he was recording them. So I think it's yeah. a fair trade, to you know, to be honest. No, yeah, I, I think it's it is just I just said I thought it was just a little bit. It's something that has kind of glossed over, and I was wondering if anybody thought that maybe it would have made for a scene or something where he kind of maybe got a little bit confronted because he creates this character based off of some other people that have already even named it. Somebody already came out saying that he was Dolomite or whatever, and he kind of almost cops this whole character off of an amalgam of these people and like I said, like you said it probably is in fair trade like he didn't just it was there i don't think there's anything malicious but like i said maybe there is a little bit of the irony in the fact that he does play this underdog role and feels like he can't get accepted and he wound up he almost exploits some of those that material from people that are even in a lesser situation than he is um but yeah, Preston, do you think it would have been like a good idea that somebody would have confronted him about it? Or maybe that never even happened in his real life, but then maybe that, or like for me, there wasn't even too much conflict almost in this movie. So maybe I was just trying to insert some of that in like with my own imagination. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know when it was like occurring, like when he was giving him whiskey and like paying him money, I, I was kind of like, oh, it's, it's interesting. He's, <laughs> he's going to get some material, but it's not really his material. But but I mean, like, I think what Joe said is, is right. I mean, like any famous, like successful comedian, they definitely, I mean, they're very original and their, their abilities to like deliver and entertain obviously set them apart. But I think they take things from life experiences. And this is maybe a little egregious, but I think, yeah, you know, I think, I think generally speaking, like he was also in a hard time, not as hard as some people, but I think he was just kind of desperate and he was tired. Yeah. Like that, that's the way they build up to it. Like he was just kind of tired of this bullshit and, yeah. you know, having to like kick out homeless people at the record store. And so he's like, well, I'm going to go take some of their jokes. But, right. I mean, some- they weren't, but they weren't really jokes. You know, they were just like these guys just riffing and going off. And, and you know, a lot of them were in like wars and they had all this crazy shit to say. And, and he just, he kind of had the intuition to be like, all right, all right, I'm going to turn this into a character. Well I, well, I will say this in defense of what I even said in terms of this question is you don't see him go back for more material. It's almost like he used that to form yeah. a character and then start, started generating his own material. So I will yeah. say that is our defense. Rod, let's say somebody comes over, pays you a little money, maybe gets you drunk or whatever, and you tell him some of your best stories and you see that person later on using them and get famous on a stand-up set. What would you think? I would think that... Um... Uh, I would be fine with it. <laughs> no royalties. <laughs> yeah. Would you actually be proud of it? Or would you say, oh, man, you're getting kind of a little bit of money. How about throwing me some? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, if we're referring to like the first guy who comes into the store, who I think they say smells like uh, urine. Yeah. Rico, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, to be honest, I don't think Rico probably ever saw that on TV. I did yep. think about that, though. Like, I was like wondering, like, what if they resurface? And well, yeah, I, kinda, it, I think it's also at some point I was like, well, maybe he'll go back and give them some money or something. I mean, he gave him a quarter for soup. Yeah, that's true. But about, yeah. but <laughs> I think I was more just thinking because, I, like I said, I, th- I think like a lot of people knew who those like homeless people were. They were kind of, or they were like sort of poets standing on the street or whatever. My question was like, you know, sort of in that community setting, people would have known who they were. They would have heard maybe those stories before if they sat down with those people or gave them some money or something like that. 
and then maybe there would have been confrontation been like yo dolomite isn't your character and you're getting rich off of it what the fuck kind of thing you stole yeah. that from that's what i was rico sort of wondering. Dolomite. not necessarily saying like rico would confront him but like somebody else being like what the fuck this isn't your character you should give him some money or something like that yeah and <laughs> I, I just to add to that i think you're right matthew on that for sure but also i think one of the scenes where they're talking about um when they're going to the movie producers and they're like, you know, you, you don't produce content for people that live within your five blocks and Dolomites, you know, like there's those same five blocks everywhere where they're yeah. saying the same jokes and same yeah. stuff. But at the same time, no, I think you're right, Matthew. Someone else probably would have gotten on and been like, man, that's not fair. You know, you're really screwing <laughs> up Rico. Yeah. I want my cut and Rico's cut. That's a good point. That was yeah. like his rationalization for it. Yeah, whatever. Like, like I said, I just thought it was interesting that like there maybe was a little bit of irony that we're supposed to root for this guy, but he did maybe exploit some people that we almost disregard within the movie because they don't come back again. So like I was saying, maybe it would have been a good reminder maybe to, when he's getting a little bit more successful, somebody comes up and maybe confronts him and makes us think about who Dolomite really is, or I mean, Rudy Ray actually is. Are we still rooting for him? Does, is there some conflict that maybe we should be thinking about? I don't know, but we're gonna move on a little bit. Uh, so this movie, like I said, is certainly an underdog movie, sort of about a guy that's putting it all on the line and gambling on itself, gambling on himself. But my question is, did it lack the gravitas that most of these films have? Like when people really, really put it all on the line, was there ever really a true moment of doubt and defeat to where he really had to push his way through? Or was, or was it that just his character is so charismatic and likable that maybe we sort of, it wasn't necessary? Or, or did this movie sort of need like a tangible antagonist for us to root against? Because we weren't really rooting against anyone. We were rooting for someone. But like, like I said, like in most of these movies, when somebody really puts it on the line, they sort of have this moment where they can't see it coming through. And that sort of happened a little bit when the movie didn't yeah. get produced. But it was such a quick turnaround. I feel like that there, yeah. it, we really didn't feel like, that, oh, man, what's going to happen? This guy's going to like go to shit. Like, do you think it sort of lacked maybe the gravitas that some of these movies like generally had? Was there ever really a moment that you, saw, you thought, man, like, I really hope things work out? Because it always felt like it was in this movie. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I think generally, like that. when I was watching, I was waiting for something bad to, or something more to happen or like for it to be uh, like, yeah, like when he couldn't get the movie basically showing, showing anywhere. I mean, that lasted for like five minutes. And so then I, I mean, it was just, everything kind of kept working out throughout the whole film. So I just kind of wondered, I guess that's how his story went. I mean, you know, I mean, but you would they think there something something in there to like make it a little bit more uh i don't know not sad but what, what were you gonna say Jeff? i was i was gonna say when they ran out of film and and he ran out of money he had to go back True, to his yeah. to the creditors like you know i can't i couldn't tell like they're albanian or whatever but but <laughs> oh, yeah, goes back yeah. on producers and he's like and they're like dude you didn't have any kind of overrun contingency plans you know what's going on here, Rudy? And he's like, "Come on!" You know he gives that charismatic speech where they're like, "All right, well I'll give you this one last shot." Yeah, I'll, I'll front you this ten grand. And, well, I think you know he ends up. Um, I think part of it, at least for me, was 
and kind of what I asked is like there wasn't really somebody that really wanted him to fail. There wasn't like an antagonist that he had to defeat. It was just sort of like a series of like obstacles he kind of had to overcome. But there was no one like no real person we could root against and root for him to beat in a way. It was more just like we want to see this happen and get it done. But like you said, Joe, like there was that moment where like he maybe was like he's very naive and new to producing films or whatever, didn't have a contingency plan. But it always felt like, oh, I think there wasn't that sort of, oh, he's down and out. He's going to be fucked if he can't get this movie going because he could just start touring again. Like maybe that's what the whole thing was, because I think that's what he kind of does. Right. He goes back and starts making money as a stand up comedian or touring and doing his sort of music stand up act. So it kind of wasn't like oh, he's going to be poor and destitute and broke and living in some shanty or whatever. It was like, oh, he just didn't get his dream, doesn't come true, which made, to me makes the stakes a little bit lower, right? Because it wasn't like, oh, if he doesn't make this movie, like he's dead. Like it was just like, oh, he doesn't make like, his dream. I don't know. It just, it felt a little bit lesser than some movies because like I said, maybe there wasn't that character that was really, really rude to get. So maybe there, the system didn't make... Maybe the system, like it wasn't something against like some Jim Crow system where like he was trying to fight some sort of racist legislation or something like that. It really was just like, no, you don't have any experience and you don't can't you don't have like money. Like it's just you know th those were the obstacles rather than maybe something more oppressive and more serious. What were you gonna say, Rod? Did yeah. you have something then? Oh, sorry. Oh, Preston, go ahead. Well, no, I was just. I mean, you, I, I agree that. I mean, considering the times, you thought like there'd be a little bit more hardship, and maybe there was, and maybe they just kind of played it down for the movie and focused on more some of the other stuff but i mean i thought that was yeah i i just as i watched the movie i just kept thinking like man this is just, everything's just kind of working out it's pretty good well they had like little tiny struggles but like you said Preston, like the the conflicts or like the problems almost got resolved immediately sort of like like there wasn't any friction between sort of like the uh the sort of like his friends, the black people that say, I don't want to work with these white guys. And that's all that sort of Daryl says from the yeah. office, right? He's like, I'm not working for him. And that's it. There's never any conflict between the two. Right. There, was never, there was never any racial tension or anything like that to overcome. Uh, th they just sort of hack into the power system pretty easily, right? To yeah. get power. Yeah. Like, there was like, was there, there, were these, there were these potential big problems, like I said, like racial sure. tension or something like that, that could have really had some character development or something like that. But it just kind of, it kind of just didn't really happen. Uh, but like I said, I really like the movie. I'm just sort of asking if if it sort of lacked maybe a little bit of what maybe I was expecting, like a lot more obstacles or bigger obstacles or more tangible obstacles is maybe what I'm getting at. Like a character, like I just keep on coming back to that, like some character that really, really wanted him to fail and or he just, just kind of I, gets around. Or just more like he didn't seem to struggle like excessively. Yeah, right. Like, and you would think someone... He didn't face like an impossible situation like... It was basically the opposite of Uncut Gems. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly in feel and style, as for sure. Well, I, think I mean, you're you're right though too. Like he didn't do this thing. Like he, like even the deal he made to get money, like he got an advance on his royalties, wasn't something that he even really had to pay back immediately. Right? It was just like you're going to be working for us for a long time kind of thing. It wasn't like, we need my money now, Lebowski. We're going to come beat yeah. the shit out of you. It was like, hey, if we'll give you the money, but you just got to keep, you know, making records. Right. <laughs> and that was kind of it. Like, so it wasn't like even, like I said, even the deal he did to get money didn't have sort of the weight that typically other deals do. Like, yeah, we're going to give you 50 grand, but if you don't pay us in two weeks or whatever, we're going to cut your dick off. Like, yeah. It wasn't like that sort of serious. Joe, I just, yeah, I bet he wasn't that fortunate, <laughs> you know, like the way they, they portray it, but uh, I think. 
Joe, what were you about to say? Nice marmot. <laughs> right. So any other thoughts, though, in terms of before we move on? Because I actually have a, a follow-up question that's kind of related to this. Um, so another thing, like I said, that kind of stuck with me about this movie rather than also like it didn't have the typical gravitas. Maybe another reason it didn't have that sort of serious thing is there were no real deep relationships in this movie. Like Rudy Ray has an aunt, but she's not a big part of his life. He doesn't have a mom, a dad. Or, I mean, we don't know. We never meet them. No mom, dad, kids, brothers, sisters, no girlfriend or wife. And like even his friends aren't really someone that like he emotionally connects with, right? Like they don't sort of help him solve his problems. He sort of does this all on his own. Yeah, he seems you know, like a leader. Sense. Yeah. And so well, that was asked, like so and what's odd to me is that usually these stories, like when somebody's like really, really feverishly chasing their dreams, there's always some like it always puts like a strain on their relationships with like either their kids or their family because they can't yeah balance their time right they don't know how to balance between choosing like chasing the thing they really want out of life but also sort of providing that emotional support for their like their spouse or their kids or whatever um so did you think this story needed like and like you can't really you know embell you can embellish the truth a little bit i guess when you write these stories even so it's based on a true story but did you think this movie needed maybe some like deeper evaluations into like his relationship with his friends or so on or so, so forth just to like add more to the character or did you think it was fine sort of the way it was uh i mean i guess it depends on you know i'm just thinking about the writers and everything like what their main focus was but yeah i mean i think that would have been nice i i you know i thought one of the more intriguing relationships he had um or that like that could have been expanded more because i just thought this this character was very interesting considering uh, Wesley Snipes was was the one portraying it, but like that <laughs> that like that little that riff that they always seem to have, but like it was never fleshed out. I, I kept waiting for like Wesley Snipes. Of course, he ended up walking out like after it was done. But you know, I I just seemed like his character was going to be this foil uh, to Rudy Ray Moore or to Dolomite. Yeah, there, but, that like, was it, definitely. It never, so but it never really like again. It was like another thing. Like oh, this could be big. And, yeah, and no, you felt oh, like there was going to be really some happened. real. You felt like there was going to be some real conflict there, like they were going to explode on the set, like in terms right. of their creative differences or whatever. Like I'm the director, well, I'm the paying you, blah blah blah. Like they could have gotten into some real mess yeah. there, but, but it actually it, never really happens. No, and it only really led up. That, like you felt like yeah, this like tension was building up, and there was going to be like a huge explosion. And honestly, it ended up turning into like a release because it was during that sex scene, um, <laughs> and and Wesley Snipes' character, who was always kind of like you know, like, oh, God, cut. Like, this is terrible. <laughs> he loved that. He thought it was so funny. He was like, that was fucking hilarious. I, I think is what he said, something like that. And so you're like, oh, okay, they're good now. Like, he's, they're good. But then, of course, he walks out later. But I don't know. I, I, I think, yeah, you, they could have fleshed out the relationships a little bit more. But, again, it's just one of those types of movies where it's just so singular and very much focused on Rudy Ray Moore and his, like, Phil yeah. Mike character. Well, some of it, and this was getting back to sort of the question that I asked before, or whatever, in terms of the lacking sort of gravitas and stakes sort of situation, or whatever, because if he had a girlfriend or if he had a family and kids and he put all that money on the line, right, it would have added so much strain to his family life, his personal relationships. His wife would have been like, oh, Rudy, you put 70 grand in this movie. You're never going to make your money back kind of thing and haunting him and haunting him. And he would have to really, really like have this struggle to like, I need to make this money back. 
But without that, when it's just him, it's just Rudy as a single guy, you, you're obviously cheering for him, but at the same time, you don't feel the weight of like all the whole, the, like the gamble, so to speak, right? He's not just gambling his money, right? If he had, if he had a wife and kids or had family that was relying on them, he would have been gambling their future too. But here he's just gambling his money and we're kind of like, okay, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, Rod, what, like, so this is sort of a, I thought was odd is because Rudy, he's so like, right, is the first time we sort of, when he gets, creates that first album, it's like him, it's like highly sexualized, right? It's like he's naked and he's got some naked chick on the, on the, on the couch, with like a fruit basket or whatever. And then what was it? He, like, he insists on having like a white woman sex scene in his movie. And he also insists on having like an all female Kung Fu army. So he obviously had sort of these like really like sexual undertones or like sexualized sort of like thoughts. Did you find it weird that he really didn't have a girlfriend or a wife or any type of story about that? With like not even an ex-girlfriend or wife that I thought he would at least have had some ex-girlfriend when he got big or famous. He could have like rubbed his fame into her face, right? Like she ditched him because he was a loser and then he got big as a stand-up and made a movie. I thought there should have been something like that. What'd you think? I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, and that could have been like, the, that could have been like the the struggle he faced would have been like maybe like there's this girl that doesn't necessarily believe in him and like you know he pursues his dream and she threatens you know if you don't make it like I'm I'm yeah. gone. But and on the same hand, this could have been more him trying to uh, portray the real story of Rudy. And yeah, maybe so I mean... Rudy just you know <laughs> didn't talk about it. It's just kind of. I mean, clearly the guy was definitely uh, a little bit out of this world. Joe, what do you think about the relationships? Do you think it would have been like helpful or do you think it was fine? Or do you think maybe, like I said, it would have added a little bit more to the gravitas of his like necessity to make this movie happen? Yeah, I think that it would have been a little bit better of character development for him to have a more well-rounded, you know, um, I guess, you know, as you say, gravitas in the film. Um, but I think that it, they were trying to do so much in two hours that it would have been pretty tricky to add all that in um, and still get, like, the background of him being a comedian and then him trying to get his records on the radio and then trying to get <laughs> a movie produced. You know, it was a lot. So, yeah, you know, I can see how that one that kind of slipped through the cracks. Yeah, I, I, and like I said, I, 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 the only thing I did was read sort of his whole Wikipedia page, and there was no, like, in the personal life section, it never said he was married, never said he had yeah. kids. So if they would have added that. I think he had two kids. Oh, he did? Yeah, something like that, but, like, he's never married. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, maybe, like, honestly, like, uh, we don't know enough, clearly, but what if his life was just kind of like this? He's just kind of like, I kind of, honestly, kind of skated through, considering, you know, the times, and uh, never really had a personal life and I just got successful and that's about it well yeah who, who knows I mean it is it's just sort of like a weird story and such it's like I said like to be completely devoid of a like a family in this situation I maybe a guy in his mid-40s probably maybe doesn't maybe his parents were dead or something like that it's in some yeah. of these stories it's usually about younger people so it's it's good to remember maybe this guy was like 45 when all this was happening so maybe like yeah. he was sort of past a point where some of these things don't interfere with his life as much as they do when you're younger or whatever. Um, do you guys want to talk about the ending? Or do you guys want to move on to sort of the wheel here? The, there isn't really too much in terms of the ending. It's just that he sort of gets the movie produced, right? And he's sort of maybe a little nervous in terms of how 
it's going to pan out, but everyone seems to like it and love it. Both times, like when he puts it on, when he puts it on at the local theater or whatever, there's a big line coming out and people are laughing at it. And then yeah. the end, when he puts it on, I think um, in Hollywood, and there's a huge, like not only like just lines to come in for the first showing, but lines to come in later too. And the ending is him just going out. A, he talks to a kid who sort of like has this sort of comedic rhythm and idolizes him. And that's obviously something that like meant a lot to him because he sort of wanted to be like to reach everyone not just people of his age but younger people too and then he sort of stands out and he you know entertains the crowd as they wait for the last movie did you think that was like important like just like adding to his character now i was kind of like racking my brain sort of thinking oh like is that meaningful or not or is that just a good way to end the movie so do y'all y'all think the movie like do y'all did y'all like the ending do you think it could have been better what did you think i mean i think that's that was the like that was to me, that was the most important part of the movie because it, it was clear like he became a huge success, at least certainly in that moment and in those years, uh, because I think the movie ended up like breaking records, not just like as a black exploitation film, but I think as like some kind of like independent film. I don't. It, I, it grossed it, over ten million dollars. Yeah, which like at the time was a record of some sort. I can't remember. I, they said it at the end, but I mean, yeah, I guess it's like look back to the movie kind of a testament to uh how how hard well, he was working <laughs> towards this goal you know yeah. in a way he was sort of like mel gibson putting on the passion of the christ right he like basically financed the whole movie and then he got all the box office returns in a way i know that he had to yeah. kind of deal with those distributors in the second part but since he produced the whole movie himself out of his money i bet his cut once it went nationwide was still in like the 75 to 80 percent of the box office because Probably. he made the whole damn thing yeah uh joe what do you think do you like the ending yeah i think that it was um it was fitting you know uh, I, I think that he deserved his to ride off into the sunset so i didn't have any problems with it yeah no i mean i i, I yeah i really really did like the movie a lot like i said i was just maybe too enamored with the character in terms of like it didn't fit sort of the traditional underdog motif then maybe that's what i was kind of sort of getting at with some of my questions or whatever but i still love the movie and i love the character and i thought it was really entertaining and funny um all right so we're going to move on to the wheel here uh we don't have too much time left so we're going to get just a few questions in the topics are number one black and white two you're the producer three i don't want to sound racist but four identity theft is not a joke Millions suffer every year. Five, sweet, sweet appearance fees. Six, love, love me, do Lamite. Seven, whammy. Eight, baby, you can blow up my car. And nine is a reason to get to ten. So, ah, uh, here we go. We're gonna blow up my car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I tried to make those last two. When did when did Lennon write that? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, number three, I don't want to sound racist, but so. You guys be on your best behavior here. So one of the major social political discussions happening right now in the United States revolves around police brutality towards African-Americans and minorities. Are you surprised there weren't any scenes at all, like funny or serious scenes with the police in this movie? I mean, like Ray Ray was a, a, was a loud, outspoken guy dressed as a pimp. They broke into a hotel and so like in a low-income neighborhood, he was sort of maybe doing some minor illegal things. Did you think, like, it almost felt like there should have been some confrontation there. Are you surprised that never came up? This And like, like I said, this is sort of like early 70s or like mid 70s. Maybe there aren't even 
you know, police aren't the best relationships with the minorities there too. So what do you think? I mean, I, I think he had to have had some, <laughs> some uh, like troubling, like not great situations in his life. And for some reason, like just the film did, you know, they focused on like, that's just not a part of his story. Like he may be yeah. really fortunate in some ways, but I mean, yeah. A black guy in the early seventies, mid seventies, like, you know, uh, he definitely went through some shit. I think that he kind of he kind of addresses that when, you know, he goes into Ti's office. That you know that um, that black film production company, and Ti's like, "Hey, brother, you know, listen to this new movie we got. You know, it's about it's about a young kid who's first one to go to college in his family." And uh, Eddie Murphy looks at him and goes. Man, nobody wants to listen to that shit. <laughs> like, and so like I can kind of see how it's like, man, nobody wants to watch that bullshit. You know, like he wants to like put together a funny like, we're yeah, having, yeah, like, telling jokes. And it's like raunchy as fuck, and yeah, there was no real place for like police brutality in between like the titties. You know, what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he this... had a pretty one track mind, like in a lot of respects. Like he was like, look, we've got to do a good job. I've got to get famous here. Uh, people love like you know tits and rock and roll, <laughs> you know, like and good music. Well, yeah, I, I just think yeah, you're probably right. Just in the sense of like, I think the way they set out to make this film, the tone didn't maybe need sort of maybe some social critiques or whatever. But like I said earlier, like this this film did sort of feel like there wasn't enough like something like hardening him down in terms of obstacles that he had to overcome if he had gotten like thrown in jail or something like that for something he didn't do or some sort of oppression. Like I said, you don't want to make up stories or whatever if they didn't happen. So I'm not even suggesting yeah. that they embellish history. But I was a little bit surprised when I was watching this movie. It almost Maybe I was just looking for cliches and maybe that's what makes this movie good is that they sort of just completely offset my expectations of it and I'm just whining about it because I wanted to sound smart. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right. Stuck, so, stuck to the comedy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're gonna spin it again. All right, black and white. This is almost in the same vibe, so be careful. So, quick impressions. What's your first thought? What's the white person movie equivalent to My Name Is Dolomite? Sort of like some down and out guy that sort of has to ragtag his way to the success. What do you think? Uh, Searching for the Sugar Man comes to mind. <laughs> Great documentary. I did actually think about that in terms of how they exploited his his music without him knowing about it when we were talking about the homeless stuff. Go ahead. I don't know. That just came to mind because we kind of talked about earlier that like Andy Kaufman in some way. I mean, obviously Andy Kaufman had a very bad, <laughs> not bad, like his life did not go, you know, maybe as planned. Uh, but like, you know, being a, I think it was around, they were in this, he was in the seventies and he wanted to be famous, not just as a comedian, but as an actor, as a wrestling <laughs> star and a few other things but uh I, I maybe maybe like dolomite but uh with the mental illness he was sort of definitely off the wall and doing something new just like dolomite was or ray ray moore was whatever i'm sorry i can't remember his name go ahead joe sorry i'll go with um walk hard do we <laughs> you know yeah the white version of uh rudy ray yeah including fiction yeah, well, what? I mean, like, including fiction. Well, he was doing something sort Hilarious of traditional. Movie. He was doing something traditional, and then when he started doing a little bit something more from the heart, he got bigger. 
sort of like don't be scared of what you're thinking and just say what you want kind of thing. Um, all right, we're gonna spend it one more time that we're gonna get onto our ratings. You don't want none of this shit, do we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? Okay, number five, sweet, sweet appearance fees. So Rudy Ray Moore is credited as being the godfather of rap by Snoop Dogg and deemed a highly influential person in black comedy by people like Eddie Murphy, right? So, but he doesn't make barely any appearances or cameos in anyone's movies in his career until he dies. Uh, do you think that was by choice or like, or do you think that was his own choice or do you, th do you think people just didn't offer? The only reason I say is because a lot of these things, like there seems to be a really, really big fraternity amongst like certain types of actors and stuff like that, especially among SNL people, people that have sort of made it from the bottom to the top. They sort of like to include other people in it. Do you think that he just maybe didn't want to do it? And, or do you think that they didn't ask? Because in this movie, you've got so many people celebrating his life, right? Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Snoop Dogg, uh, who like plenty of other, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the names, but you would think that these people thought he was so influential, they would have tried to ask him to at least have like a minor part, minor role and appearance in some of their movies. Right, right. And you would think that the way like his character, <laughs> he himself was portrayed that he would have been all about it. You know, like, yeah. I definitely would have been in another movie, but I'm just curious, hear me out much like Eddie Murphy, who clearly uh, has an affinity for Ray Ray Moore is influenced by him. Eddie Murphy at some pretty much like once the nineties hit, I mean, he did some things, obviously had some big hits, but definitely once the two thousands hit, he's been fairly reclusive at times, like just yeah. like out, out of the picture. And probably has said no to a lot of things. And I mean, I'm wondering subconsciously if he kind of modeled himself in some ways after Ray Ray Moore, who I, I had to have said no to a lot of things over the years. Because you're right. Like, I, I remember looking this up. Like, he, he wasn't really in any other, like, he wasn't in any big films or TV shows or like, yeah. like I don't even remember many of these people necessarily like talking about him in such a public way. But Clearly, he influenced a lot of people. What do you think, Joe? Uh, you know, I just think that he, he's just one of those really talented guys that could have slipped through the cracks. He, um, yeah, uh, it, it, it is a good question as to why some of the more mainstream black actors and comedians didn't get him into their movies and TV shows. Um, but one, he could have been a little old and he could have made his money and was just happy to sit on his ass and uh, watch the duck shit in the yard type deal. Well, that's like, what I was thinking too, right? Cause like we talked about earlier, he financed all those movies himself. So he was, he made a lot of when he, if those movies and when they were successful, he got the lion's share of those. He didn't just get paid to act in them or direct them. He got the big profit share. Rod, what do you think? Do you think that what would you do if someone gave you, if you had tons of money and people tried to act, ask you to be in like little minor roles, would you accept them? What do you think? No, I would totally pull that <laughs> and follow the footsteps of JD Salinger. I mean, <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of respect for that. Just, and I, just, think, I, I think that, that exactly like you're saying, I mean, he had made it on his, after getting turned down by everyone, you know, now when he gets hot, they want him. And, um, I mean, he had made it on his own, so why would he then, you know, yeah. Yeah, it could be an ego thing, too, but uh, I, I also think, like... Not an ego thing, but more of just, this is how I am. This, yeah. Um, well, yeah, and maybe he just got so, like, it, 
so such a high of being someone that like started from the bottom and made literally a whole movie by himself that when somebody asks you to do something little it's almost maybe you think it's disrespectful but like Preston said I, I think I do think he probably he sort of did what he wanted right he made the movies he got big he did the records and then maybe once he experienced that success and had enough money to sort of depart maybe that's probably why he just kind of just didn't really care anymore or not I shouldn't say didn't care but like valued his privacy maybe he just, he was getting old too like joe said Faded he was in the background yeah like like joe said he was a little bit older he started like this was the beginning of this he made his first movie was when he was in his mid-40s so maybe when he made two or three of them whatever he was like fuck this out we fly it out to do little bit parts whatever um all right so we're gonna move on to our rankings of this movie uh, we're gonna start out with the acting we're gonna start with preston you acting out of 25 then we'll go to joe rodney um acting hmm well i mean the acting was pretty good it was mainly eddie murphy you know <laughs> like everyone else is very much supporting his role and i know he had some uh award considerations and i think they like he might have expected more but uh i'm, I'm gonna give it a 20 23 joseph uh, yeah i want to give it uh, i'm gonna go with the 23 as well, because, you know, there were so many cool cameos, like I said earlier, T.I., uh, you know, Craig Robinson, not a cameo, he was a starring role, but you know, there, there's just so many funny actors in the movie that I'm leaning towards. Them. Wesley Snipes. Like, yeah, Wesley Snipes. <laughs> well, I, I just yeah. thought that, still, that him being that kind of a character, it's just... Yeah, because he's, he's, he's usually such a badass. And I, I guess he wasn't gay, but like, because he's at a strip club with a girl, but he did have a very like effeminate sort of character to him, if I'm not mistaken. Rod, what'd you think acting out for My Name is Dolomite? Dolomite is my name. What, 22? <laughs> yeah, man, I really can't complain about this movie in terms of anything, even though I was complaining the whole time. Because uh, So I'm going to give it a, a 23 as well. We're going to have almost 23s across the board without Rod. So Preston, moving it back to you, music. Music was pretty, pretty heavy in this movie. What'd you think? I love the music. <laughs> I thought it was great. I love. I've, I've always loved music from that time, particularly like any kind of Motown or R and B. And you know, the second sign the Family Stone started, I was just like, oh yeah. <laughs> and also, the original tunes were pretty, pretty good. Like Craig Robinson, obviously, if people who know him, like he can sing, he can play the piano a little bit, but. uh they had some like just some good grooves, good backbeats. It was just like uh, I don't know. It was a nice little surprise to the movie. So I'm gonna give the music a 25. Oh, nice, Joseph. I want to say it's a 20, uh, 23 again, especially with Craig Robinson's ad libs on uh, a lot of his funky <laughs> numbers. I love that. Rod, what'd you think? 22. 22. Uh, I'm with Preston. I really, really, really enjoyed the music in this movie. Um, oh, like it just always felt like, soon as you heard that like first baseline, that first riff, and you sort of recognize. I love that in movies when you sort of, like maybe I'm just like <laughs> trying to think of name that tune or whatever. But like when you recognize a song like in a movie and you sort of like point to the screen, that's like kind of what I do. Like oh sweet yes, looking forward to this. All right, so uh, 24 for me. I know y'all don't really experience the same music the same way i do so <laughs> Preston characters out of 25 what do you think um so here i think like the, the movie we've kind of talked about in some way could have done a little bit better uh i think 
it's I mean, as far as I know, the, the Eddie Murphy did a great job playing True to Rudy Ray Moore. I would have enjoyed some more of the other like like his friends having bigger roles. I thought the Wesley Snipes character was probably the next best one, and, and well, I think um, was her name B Lady B. Yeah, she was pretty yeah. good. So, but I'm gonna give it a 21. What do you think, Joe? Joseph? I'm with Preston on this. I'm going to go with uh, 21. Okay. <laughs> Rod, your thought on the characters? Could have been better? Could have been worse? What do you think? I'm going to go with a 21. <laughs> one more. We almost got Pressure's on, Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, this is the one thing, like, maybe my whole, all my questions were sort of centered on. Maybe I just wanted want a little bit more depth because this was very, very centrally focused and Eddie Murphy's character of Raymore, whatever comes, or uh, Dolomite. But uh, I mean, as as Joe sort of argued, like maybe this is maybe that's just how it was. I would have liked to have seen like a, a little bit more depth with his character, like his friends, because they they were sort of hauled into the ending, right? Like they shared the limo ride with them. They were sort of the stars of the of the of the movie they made, right? So pre presumptively, presumably. They had a bigger role than maybe we saw on screen of how they made the film. I, I don't know. Like, right. I feel like if they were sort of included in like that limo ride and they were sort of like executive producers or whatever, they would have had maybe a little bit more influence, more to say, more conflict with what uh, Eddie Murphy's character was trying to do. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, I keep on throwing the word conflict out there because there wasn't that much in this movie. And I kind of would have liked to, maybe I'm just someone who likes to see You're the just arguments. A for conflict. Yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just go with a 19 on this one. All right, finally, we're going to wrap it up with the plot. Preston, go for it. Uh, I mean, again, I think if I'd read a Rudy Ray Moore documentary, I mean, a novel biography before this, I would have had a better idea of just, like, what his life was like. Uh, in a way, like, I appreciated the up, upbeat outlook um, with the minor obstacles. But, I mean, I, I don't think it was, to me, the, the comedy and and like the, the foundation of the story, like really um, made this movie what it was. So I'm going to give another uh, 21. Joseph, what'd you think? Um, you know, the plot, I, I actually really enjoyed it because it was so uplifting and positive And it was really a story about a guy just, he was a go-getter and he had a goal and he went and he accomplished that. And so I really appreciate that. So I'm going to go 24. Rod? I'm going to go with a 22. <laughs> okay. Again, I have the same sort of complaint I did last time. I'm going to give it a 19 because, like I said, maybe – but, then again, I really don't know. Like I said, I, I had plenty of complaints about it. But I also sat there the whole time and was very entertained and loved the movie. I loved every – like I, I was never bored and also just, but maybe sort of questioned a few things, but then again, what the fuck do I know? So I'm going to give a 21 um, and that's going to wrap up our ratings and review of my name is Dolomite or Dolomite is my name. I can keep on getting that confused. It's almost like a dyslexia of movie titles. <laughs> All right. So next week we're going to have a special guest, our friend Christopher Darden, and we're going to do total recall the late 80s or early 90s classic with the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's on Netflix. So everyone look forward to that. Anyone got anything last words to say before we end the show? 
Dolomite is my name and fucking <laughs> motherfuckers is my game. And take a dump and smoke a joint. <laughs> Keep on buddy. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, thank you guys. Dolomite, y'all. Dolomite.